Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. We're glad that you're with us. We'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Like Becky was saying, small groups is a great way to do that. If you're a woman, would absolutely encourage you to check out the Women's Book Study. That book has actually been on my list of ones I need to read soon. And so uh, that's a good reminder for me to get to read that one. Re- uh, Rebecca McLaughlin is great and uh, really encourage you to do that. If you're a dude, you want to read it, let me know and we can talk about it together. It'll be fun, right? Um, I'd also love to invite you into a series that we're in, working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter uh, to a guy named Titus. We saw Titus is one of Paul's most trusted ministry partners and fellow pastors and church planters. And as such, Titus was the guy that Paul entrusted with some of the more challenging, difficult ministry assignments. And we see that an especially challenging ministry assignment was the reason why Paul wrote Titus this letter in the first place. We learn in chapter 1, verse 5, that uh, Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete, which instead of being like this idyllic Mediterranean vacation spot, that you might have in your mind uh, was actually a place at the time that was infamous for being one of the most dangerous and immoral places in the whole ancient world. The island cities were plagued with violence and sexual corruption. The people on Crete were known for being incredibly untrustworthy and duplicitous liars whose selfishness and greed was almost as legendary as the god that they worshipped, Zeus. And as you might expect, based on that content, things in these kind of newly formed, newly planted churches in Crete weren't going especially great. Instead of living as countercultural lights for Christ in the darkness of Crete, the lives of many of these new Christians look just a lot like their pagan neighbors still. And that brings us to the job that Paul left Titus to do in Crete. See, the main thing that we see Paul wants Titus to spend his time doing is to help the Christians throughout the island of Crete and the churches that are there to be increasingly characterized by being people who love, do, and teach what is good. That phrase, uh, doing good, it's a phrase that gets repeated at least seven times in these three short chapters of this letter. And At the beginning of our series, we talked about how this idea of growing in goodness and doing good, it's not just about like kind of random drive-by acts of kindness, and it's also not about just an absence of bad behavior. Instead, the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here is this idea of it's the pursuit of all that is true and right and good. See, ultimately, this call to grow in goodness is a call to be like our good God. Instead of reflecting the actions and attitudes of Zeus, Paul's heart for these Christian Christians and for you and I is that we would be a people who reflect the actions and attitudes of Jesus. See, the, see the goal of gospel ministry is not just to like make converts, get people who like say that they believe in Jesus. The goal of gospel ministry is to make disciples, people who, who not just with their words profess faith in Jesus, but whose lives demonstrate their faith in him. And that brings us to our passage this morning. You see, we're going to chapter 2 of Paul's letter to Titus. And what we're going to see Paul doing in chapter 2 is he's laying out for Titus and us the kind of transformed life and character that faith in Jesus is meant to produce in people. Right? And he, he lays out for Titus the kind of good and godly lives that Christian leaders like him are, are supposed to help others to grow and to help churches to be, to be characterized by as a whole. And as we study uh, what this kind of godly life looks like, we're going to see the who, the what, the why, and the how of growing in godliness, right? We're going to see who needs to grow in godliness. Spoiler alert, it's you, right? You definitely need to. You know, everyone's in on this one. 
What does that look like? Why is it so important? And how do you actually do it? So uh, with that in mind, let's pray and we'll dive into Paul's letter to Titus and see what it looks like for us to grow in godliness together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're really grateful for you. And we're grateful for our time together in your word. And God, we just want to come uh, humbly to you this morning as we think about uh, your call to us as your people to begin to bring our lives and our actions and our attitudes and our character increasingly into a line and reflection of, of Jesus. We just recognize, God, that there's stuff in our passage this morning that rubs us all the wrong way. Places where we, we realize that we are out of line with you, that we don't want to change in. God, and where there are places for us that you need to correct us, would you give us soft and gentle hearts to receive it from you? Where, where there's a direction you're calling us in, would you give us feet that are like quick to follow you into it and to obey you into it? And, and God, where there's places we want to run from you and run from obedience to you, God, might you help us to see not just the importance of your commands here, but you, would you help us to see its goodness? And so we need you for that, God. I don't have any power to make any of that stuff happen, um, but you do. And so, God, for our joy and for the good of our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and for your great glory, uh, would you help us to see and respond rightly to your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, if you were uh, with us last week, you'll remember that chapter one of Titus ended with Paul basically kind of like lambasting the current batch of leaders in these Cretan churches because their ungodly lives and their false kind of legalistic teaching, uh, it was leading people away from godliness, not towards it. And and so in contrast to these bad leaders, we're going to see Paul in our passage this morning teaching Titus about what it looks like to be a good leader and what it means for him to, instead of teaching false doctrine, to teach true doctrine and what, how that changes our lives and the kind of good and godly lives that faith in Jesus produces in people. And so Titus chapter 2 begins this way. You, however, Titus, again, you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what's good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you might be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them and not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. 
Like I mentioned this morning in our passage, we, we see Paul laying out for us the, the who, what, why, and how of growing in goodness, growing in godliness. And so let's just begin with the who, right? Back in chapter 1, we saw how being characterized by loving, being, and doing what is good and teaching what is good, it begins with appointing good leaders, people whose lives and teaching reflect the truth and the goodness of God, and also by rejecting the influence of bad leaders, right? People whose lives and teaching don't reflect the, the truth and goodness of God. But as you read our passage here in chapter 2, what becomes abundantly clear is that growth in goodness, growth in godliness, that that is not just something that's limited to the calling of Christian leaders. That's the calling of every Christian, of all Christians. Throughout the passage, we see Paul giving specific instructions to men and women, to young and old, to slave and free. At the end of the passage in verse 15, he tells Titus not to let anyone disregard or despise his teaching on these things. Right? In other words, Growth in goodness, growth in godliness, it is the calling, it is the job, it's the goal of every Christian, right? There are no exceptions, there are no loopholes, there are like nobody's getting off on a technicality, like nah, you're good, you don't have to actually do it. Saving faith is changing faith for everyone. That's how it works. And so every Christian is called to a life of growing in godliness. And the logical next question then is just, what does that look like? Right? What does it mean to do that? Well, it's easy to see all the differences in the specific instructions for godly living that Paul lays out for each of these various groups of people we see him describing in verses 1 through 10. And we'll talk about those differences in just a moment. But I actually think it's really important to begin with what's the same, not what's different. What, what do they have in common? And when you, what you notice pretty quickly when you look for similarities is that self-control is this phrase that keeps coming up over and over and over again in the passage this morning. Right? Older men, younger women, and younger men are all explicitly told to be characterized by self-control. Besides, uh, but, but it's not like other groups, it's not like the other groups mentioned are off the hook somehow, right? right? Besides the fact that you can't help somebody do something you're not doing, the instructions to older women about not slandering others or not being addicted to wine, those are at the core about self-control. Right? In addition, the same is true for slaves or bondservants, people who are charged not to talk back to or steal. Again, fundamentally, those things are about exercising self-control. To top it all off, in verse 12, Paul talks about how the grace of God, it teaches all of us, everybody, to live self-controlled lives. And so self-control is kind of like this through line in the passage, right? It's the common denominator in Paul's like godliness equation, right? This is true for everyone. This is something we all need to be growing in. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us for, for a couple reasons. <clears throat> Number one, the Bible talks about self-control all the time, right? It's what's known as a foundational virtue, which that doesn't mean it's more important than any of the other commands that we see in the passage. It just means all the other ones kind of rely on that one. Right? You're not going to be able to do most of the stuff in the passage if self-control isn't also true. Right? It's, the, it's kind of the linchpin for a lot of the other ones. And the scientific research backs up the importance of self-control and its necessary centrality in our lives. It's not just the Bible. Right? If, you're, if you've been taking a psychology class, right, you'll, you'll probably be familiar with the 1960 uh, Walter Mischel study called the Marshmallow Experiment, where he kind of famously uh, gave a marshmallow uh, to kids. Right? And he said, listen, here's this marshmallow, you can eat it, but if you wait 15 minutes, you'll get two of them. Right? And to the surprise of roughly zero people, 
uh, almost no, none of the kids waited, right? Like they, some of them got a little farther than others, but almost none of them made it the whole time, right? And that's not the discovery, though. See, the real discovery would come years later when Misha would follow up with all these kids that he had done this, this testing on. And he found that with remarkable consistency, that those who had demonstrated more self-control were dramatically outpacing their peers in almost every area of life. You see, self-control is necessary for growing in godliness. It's also just necessary for being a human, right? Like for growing up as a person. See, the problem is, though, is that what's painfully clear is that if there's one thing that the people on the island of Crete lack most, it was self-control, right? Crete was the notorious for being a place where people were out of control. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, Paul quoted one of the Crete's own prophets who said that Cretans were always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, right? These are people who couldn't or wouldn't control their speech, their emotions, their appetites, right? Crete was a place where people just did and said whatever they wanted, right? Where people were ruled by their passions, they were ruled by their desires, But Paul says, that is not the way of living for Christians. That's not what should characterize God's people. right? We're to be a people who rule over our desires, not a people who are ruled by them. right? We're to be a people who choose to do what is right and good, not a people who choose to do whatever feels good in the moment. We're to be a people who who are God-centered and others-focused, not self-centered, us-focused. And the reality is that whether you're a man or a woman, young or old, slave or free, all of us need to be characterized by self-control, and all of us have plenty of room to keep growing. See, but here's the thing. The ways in which we're tempted to live for ourselves and be ruled by our own desires, right? the, the ways that we need to grow in exercising self-control, it's not the same for everybody. Right? There's different challenges and different temptations that we face. And that brings us to the the specific or kind of unique instructions that Paul gives each of these five groups of people in verses 1 through 10. He begins in verse 2 by addressing older men, and he tells Titus to teach them, in addition to being self-controlled, to be temperate, worthy of respect, sound in faith and in love and in endurance. That word temperate, it refers to the idea of being, it's like somebody who's steady and consistent. Right? It's about being somebody who's not given to extremes, who's not riled up easily, who doesn't just get angry at everything, but instead somebody who's marked by this kind of a calm, consistent, sober-mindedness. They're steady. In addition, their older men are to be sound in faith and love, endurance. That word sound, it means to be healthy. These parts of their lives, these aspects of our lives are to be characterized by being healthy and good. Right? Older men are to model a faith in God that is healthy and vibrant, not one that's old and used up. They're to set the example for what it looks like to sacrificially love and serve their families and their churches, not just in the short term, but over the long term. They're to be people who are worthy of respect, right? Somebody that other people want to be like. And what we see here in the specific instructions that Paul gives He suggests that the the temptation for older men is to kind of live their lives, this this last kind of half or third of their lives, right? Just kind of like living in neutral instead of in drive, right? They're just kind of coasting. They feel like they've loved their families, they served their church, right? And now it's just time to sit back and relax, right? Like check out of the game, right? Take a nice seat on the bench or maybe a comfier chair in the stands, right? Just kind of watch what's going on, just be an observer for a while, finally get to focus on themselves for a little bit. 
And one of the things that you notice with guys who take this approach in their lives, especially near the end of their lives, right, is that they almost invariably become characterized by being people who are just very critical and cynical. Right? Instead of leading by example, they're always complaining about how something is not the way it was, not the way it's supposed to be, or not the way it used to be, or, or about how the world's just getting worse and everybody's just like everything's headed in the wrong direction. And that might be true. Right? It might be true. But here's the problem. Although they probably have a lot of wisdom and experience that younger people could learn from, nobody is listening to those kind of guys. No one cares. Right? Because they carry themselves in such a way that just turns people off to anything helpful that they might have to say. Just kind of like an old curmudgeon. Right? Instead of becoming just kind of like one of these cynical armchair quarterbacks for life, Titus, he tells, Paul tells Titus to teach these older guys to stay in the game Keep loving their families and their churches sacrificially. Keep living for the good of others, even when it's hard. Not give in to cynicism and lose hope, but instead to model a confidence and a kind of faith in Jesus that shows that you believe that he is still at work in this generation just like he was in yours. See, in much of those same sentiments, they ring true in Paul's words, his instructions to older women as well. He goes on in verse 3 to say this, likewise, similarly, along the same lines, right? Teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Listen, like older men in the church and in the families, right? Older women are to be pace setters for their families and their churches. And one of the ways that they do this, Paul says, is by living a life that is characterized by reverence, by holiness, by being someone who is clearly set apart for the Lord and for his purposes. And you can't do that if you're addicted to substances. You can't do that if you're drunk all the time. And you won't ever be able to teach what is good and godly. No one will ever listen if you're known for speaking poorly about others by slandering and by gossiping. Listen, sometimes I think what you find with older women is that they get to this stage in life where they just kind of like lose their filter, right? And they either like just kind of assume that like, uh, like they just have stopped caring about what anybody else thinks or they feel like they've earned the right to just speak their mind and say whatever they want, right? And just like the cynical older men that nobody is listening to, nobody's listening to them either. They have no influence. They have no impact. Especially not with the people who need their influence the most, which are the younger women, Paul says. The charge of older women isn't just to set a godly example for others. It's to teach what is good for younger women, to model that, to show that, to help them to grow in it, to urge them in verses 4 and 5 to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. Now, I'll just say this before we dive into these verses. If there was ever a set of instructions that our culture just like rubs, that gets rubbed the wrong way about, it is these verses, right? Like you read those and most people are just like, eject, I'm out. Like this is just, we're, we're not doing this, right? But before we kind of write off these instructions as just outdated rules or just so, it's kind of some oppressive guidelines, let me just clarify a few things first, right? People have often used passages like this one to teach that kind of the, the only good godly role that women can or should play in the church or in their families is to be homemakers, right? Like they should just stay home and have babies and make sourdough bread and just like, just like, that's all, that's all. Just do that. Just be quiet and do that. Like that's your thing. Just stay in your lane, right? 
And that is a problem for a number of reasons, chief among which is that we see numerous examples throughout the scriptures of women who are not just shown to be, but are commended for being important and influential leaders in their church, just like Priscilla was, or for having successful and flourishing careers in business like Lydia. Not to mention the fact that the type of woman that's praised in Proverbs 31, right, is this kind of like ideal woman, is somebody who is clearly, like, the only thing she's good at is not, it's not just like raising kids, right? That girl is like kicking butt and taking names when it comes to like finan- the financial sector, right? She's making investments, she's getting a return on her income, like, she's killing it, right? Additionally, Paul does not say that women are to be obedient to their husbands, let alone all men in general, right? That would have been the way that the Roman, the Greco-Roman world or that the Christian philosophers would have assumed and taught, right? Women just wholesale, subject, obedient, right? That's just no questions asked. That's what it looks like. But Paul says that instead that they're to be subject to their husbands. It's a phrase that means that they're to submit to them. And this idea of submission in our world, it, it comes across as just this very demeaning and diminishing thing. But that is not the case in the scriptures. Submission is about playing this role that we see God giving Eve in Genesis 2 as, as being somebody who is a necessary ally and an indispensable helper to Adam. Right? She does that by having this voluntary attitude of humble cooperation, by helping to carry a burden and by assuming responsibilities. The real kicker, though, is that you see that that role, this one of submission, that's one that Jesus himself chooses to play. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it shows that Jesus modeled this kind, of, <clears throat> this kind of submission for us in the way that he chose to relate to God the Father. And so what that means is that submission is not like just silence or unconditional obedience. Like that's not what that is at all. Again, just look at the way Jesus related with his father, right? He's in this constant communication with the father. He expresses his thoughts and emotions and makes his concerns known to him. He, he seeks to change those kinds of things. But in the end, he's not working to advance his own agenda. Instead, his goal is to bring about the will of the father in whatever way the Father sees best fit to do it. I'll just add this. The fact that Ephesians 5 teaches that husbands are to be characterized by laying down their lives for their wives, by humbly and sacrificially seeking their brides flourishing and good before, ahead of, like in, in greater importance than their own, what that does is like, it helps us to see that this kind of submission that Paul's writing to and calling us to, it's not just safe, it's, it's good. There's life there in it. So, the, so if Paul isn't saying that younger women just need to be obedient homemakers in order to be godly, then the question is, what is he saying? Right? What, what does it look like for younger women to grow in godliness I think John Stott summed it up best when he wrote this. He said, It would not be legitimate to base on this passage either a stay-at-home stereotype for all women or a prohibition of some kind against wives also being professionals in the workforce. What is rather affirmed is that if a woman accepts the vocation of marriage and has a husband and children, that she will be characterized by loving them and not neglecting them. See, the call to love their husbands and children and to be busy at home is not a call to only be busy at home. It's a caution against the temptation to be over busy everywhere else. See, focusing her time and attention anywhere or everywhere but at home.
And this is especially a temptation, I think, for young moms who've either chosen to stay home and to put their careers on pause for a while or, or had to for whatever reason. And they feel a sense of loss of identity and purpose, right? In their career, they were somebody important, right? People needed them. They were important and influential, right? And now they're, just, they're not just known as somebody who's important anymore. They're just known as somebody's parent now. And that can be really hard. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you this morning, right? The work of keeping tiny humans from constantly trying to end themselves on every staircase they've ever seen, right? Or just like helping to teach them to like not become narcissistic lunatics, right? Like and actually to love Jesus and serve him. That job is not only insanely difficult, it is like immeasurably important. It is absolutely worthwhile and necessary and significant, It really matters. But secondly, I want to encourage you with this. Your identity is rooted in who Jesus says that you are. Not in what you do or don't do and for whoever you do it for. Jesus says you are his, you belong to him, you are his beloved adopted daughter. That's what matters most. And if you would embrace the identity that he gives you instead of trying to manufacture one yourself, It'll empower you not only to be present, but to be full of a Christ-centered love for others in whatever role God gives you to play, in your family, in your career, wherever else. And it'll empower you to keep dying to yourself and to keep living for Christ and the people he's called you to love and serve, wherever that might be. But it's not just younger women who need to keep dying to to themselves so they can live for Christ it's younger men too. Right? In verse 6, Paul tells Titus to encourage younger men to be self-controlled. And you think, like, that's it? Like, they just get one thing, right? Like, everybody else got a big list of things that they got to be working on. Younger men need to be self-controlled. And then you think about it for a minute, and you think about every young man you've ever known, and you're like, you know what? That does sum it up. Like, I think if we, it's like, if they worked on that, like, things would be in a much better spot, right? Like, if, if, they were just worked on self-control, like we'd really, like that would, like that'd be great, right? You see, the Achilles heel, right, the fatal flaw of many young men is that they are just ruled by their desires. And they struggle to control their temper or their tongue or their ambitions or their sexual urges. Those are just, just to start the list and to name a few things. And in verse 7, Paul tells Titus as a younger man himself that he is supposed to model the kind of all-encompassing, life-consuming self-control so that these other younger men might see it lived out in him. I just think that's so important that you see that. See, what happens, I think, for a lot of younger guys is that they feel just, if they're honest, just like defeated when it comes to exercising self-control. Just like feels like a battle. They just feel like they can't win. What they need is a picture and an example in their lives that shows them not just the direction that God's calling them to go, but they need somebody to show them like it's actually possible. Like you can have, like you can grow in this. You can be characterized by it. You don't have to be ruled by your passions anymore. In addition, Titus is to model for these young men the kind of, in his teaching, the kind of maturity that they should be aspiring to. Right? Integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech. Right? In other words, these young men, they need to grow up to take life seriously and to take their faith seriously and to take responsibility for their words and their actions. They need to be characterized by self-control. 
But the final group of Christians Paul offers instructions for godliness to are a group, just, he just calls them slaves. In verse 9 through 10, he writes it this way. He says, be subject, slaves are to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And we don't have time to do the deep dive this morning on everything the Bible has to say about slavery, but what I want to just be clear about is this. When, when Paul gives this command for slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, he's not just like cheering slavery. He's not just like, this is great, we love this, Jesus is totally for this, just like, yes, like let's do it, right? Instead, what he's doing is he's providing practical ways of just dealing with the realities of his day. Right? We see elsewhere in Scripture, he encourages, in the letter to Philemon, he encourages masters to set free people who they have owned. And he encourages slaves to seek their freedom whenever that's possible. Right? Paul's not cheering slavery. But what he's doing is he's offering these practical ways of dealing with the realities of their day, helping believers negotiate this tension between being free in Christ and yet also having this obligation to serve an earthly master. One of the primary ways this gets worked out is in the way that they're to approach uh, how they, their work and their service. Right? They're not just to do the bare minimum. They're not just to do the, like, the minimum what's required of them and nothing more. Paul says that they're to seek to please their masters. They're to go out of their way to seek to bless and to be good to them. And they're also as well not only to refuse to take what, is the, what isn't theirs, but to show that in everything they're characterized by trustworthiness, that they can be relied on. And Paul gives this reasoning in the end of verse 10. He says, so that the teaching about God our Savior would be attractive. See, and that leads us perfectly to the, from the what of growing in the gospel to the why. See, why is growth in godliness? Why is growing to love and do and be and teach what is good? Why is that so important? Here's the short answer. People who don't know God yet are watching your life. People who don't know him yet are watching your life. Paul reiterates this sentiment three times in this short passage by giving the reasoning behind the instructions for godliness he's giving people. In verse 5 he says, so that no one would malign the word of God, no one would speak poorly or badly about it, the gospel that is. Verse 8, so that those who oppose you might be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Right? That the way that you live and what you teach, it wouldn't offer any just like open roads for the gospel to, to be disregarded. Verse 10, so that in every way, that you would make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. The word that's translated there at the end, that, that make it attractive, that was a word that was used in the original language to refer to arranging jewels in order to display their beauty. One commentator put it this way, he said, the gospel is a jewel, and a consistent Christian life is like the setting in which the gospel jewel is displayed, and it can either add luster and beauty to it, it can display it in the most attractive way possible, or it can detract from it. See, in other words, what people see in your life will either serve to affirm and reinforce that what you say and what you believe, that they're true, that it matches. Or they will serve, like it did for the false teachers in chapter 1, to discredit whatever you have to say about God altogether. Remember when I was in college, I got a chance one evening uh, to share my testimony and just like how the gospel is really changing me with a, a friend of mine that I've been praying for for a number of years. 
And that conversation that night led to a year of getting to study the Bible with my friend and eventually see him come to faith in Jesus. But I'll never forget what he told me that night after I just talked to him about how the gospel was changing me and how it was being good news to me and what it looked like to find my identity in Jesus. And I remember him telling me that night after we had talked for an hour at that time, he said, I felt like I could trust what you said because you were someone who I could see that what you said you believed and the way that you lived actually matched. Church, here's the reality. Whether you realize it or not, your friends and neighbors and coworkers and family and kids are watching your life. And the question is, what are you saying? What are you saying? A few years ago, I came across a poem written by a guy named Arthur McPhee. It's called The Gospel According to You, and I think it really perfectly sums up this sentiment. In the second stanza, he writes this. He says, you are writing a gospel a chapter each day by the things that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. So what is the gospel according to you? Church, the way that you live your growth in godliness, it is not just about you. It's not just this personal thing between you and God. Paul says that it has to do with others coming to know him themselves. That's why it matters so much. And what people see in your life, the inconsistencies, what they see in what you say about what, what you believe and the way that you live, it'll either preach the truth about Jesus and his transforming grace and goodness or he shouts lies about him. And it undermines everything else you might have to say. It really matters. But that being said, I also want you to hear this. Missional responsibility alone, right? just knowing that other people, like it matters like the salvation of other people, like that, that, that matters the way that you live for that. Just knowing what you're supposed to be doing, right? Like that's not enough. If all you have is the who and the what and the why, you will be crushed under the weight of the fact that you just don't do it. It'll always be like this, just like a brick around your neck. See, if you want to actually grow in godliness, not just know that you need to, you need something better and deeper than just like the urgency of the mission. You need something more powerful than just a list of what God is calling you to. See, that brings us to the how of growing in, the, in godliness. Verses 1 through 10, that's the who, the what, and the why. Verses 11 through 14, that's the how. And what you see in those verses is not self-effort and willpower and just sucking it up, right? What you don't see is just like doing better and trying harder and just wanting it more. Right, what you see is the good news of the gospel. Verse 11, for the grace of God appeared and it offers salvation to all people. The worst to the best, it offers salvation to all of us in spite of ourselves, not because of us. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of Jesus himself who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, who are eager to do what is good. Not that have to, that want to. 
See, Paul is saying to Titus and to the Cretans and to you and me that the good news of the gospel of God's grace, that's the thing that saves you. And the good news of God's grace made known in the gospel, that is also the thing that changes you. He says, grace is a savior, but grace is also a teacher. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to Christ-likeness. Church, this is what we're getting at when we talk about wanting to be a church that's growing in the gospel. Listen, the one way that you change in a meaningful way, in a lasting way, the one way real transformation happens in your life is not when you just suck it up and try hard enough. It's when the good news of God's grace made known to you in Jesus becomes compelling and captivating to you. See, Christianity is not a list of to-dos. It's not a list of just like morals to master and rituals to adopt. From beginning to end, from start to finish, the good news of the gospel, the message of Christianity is about responding to God's grace. And the good news of God's grace, the message of the gospel, it says that Jesus, God himself, gave himself for you. And he did that to redeem you from all your wickedness. He did it to deliver you from slavery to sin. Not when you had cleaned yourself up, not when you had gotten your crap together, but when you were in the midst of rebellion and stuck in sin, that's when Jesus gave himself for you. And he did it not just so that you might have salvation, but he did it so that you might live a new life. He says to purify for himself a people who are his very own, who in response to all that he has done for you, are eager to do what is good. People who long with all their heart to bring their actions and attitudes their behaviors, their thoughts in line with Jesus's. Not because they have to, because they want to. One commentator gave this analogy, he said it this way, why do I serve my wife? Not because I have to, not because I must, I don't need to win her love, she has already given herself to me, and so I serve my wife because I love her, and my love for her is fed by her own love for me. So why then do I serve my Savior? Not because I must. I don't have to win his love. He has already given himself for me. And so I serve my Savior because I love for him and my love for him. It's fed by his love for me. Church, do you see the how of growing in godliness? Do you see it? It's in responding to the grace of God made known to you in Jesus. And when you see him dying for you in your place for your sin, not out of duty and obligation, but out of love for you, then what happens is it compels you to give yourself back to him. And the, the sin that used to characterize your life and the ways it tempted you, it starts to be, it's like instead of bringing this lure to you, it becomes this thing that disgusts you. And it's not that you never fall back into patterns of sin and that you never make mistakes, but it's that like you, are want, you long to go in a new direction. You, know, you don't want to toy around with sin anymore. You don't want to just like let it fester in your life. You want to root it out completely. You don't want to dance with it. You want to get rid of it. 
And you want to do that because you know, not that you have to. You're not trying to earn his love, but that he has given himself for you already. That his love for you is not in question. And so out of a response to him, you want to give yourself back to him. And it's that good news that we are remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. Communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember his body and blood that are broken and shed for us. And so if you put your trust in Jesus, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, I want to encourage you, go back and take communion. Dip the bread and the juice, let it be a reminder to you, a physical, potent reminder that Jesus' body was broken so that you might be redeemed from wickedness and his blood was shed so that you might be made pure and that you might live a new life of worship and holiness unto him. Let it be this thing that like helps you not take him for granted. Let it fuel a life of love and obedience to him even when it's costly. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what that means, and if you're ready for that, and if surrendering to him as king is even something you're ready for, I just want you to know if that's where you're at this morning, you are welcome here. But hold off on taking communion, because God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that relies on him completely, nothing that you can do. So communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And we want to help you know him. Wherever you're at this morning, as we take communion and sing, I want to encourage you, talk with God. See, for the sake of those who don't know him yet, and in response to God's grace that he's made known to us in Jesus, the call for all of us is to grow in godliness. That's the biggie on the eye chart. right? Like if you're wondering what's the takeaway, Growth and godliness, that's the takeaway this morning. That's where God's calling you. So the question is, where is he putting his finger on your heart and life this morning? Where is he showing you that your life looks more like Zeus than it does Jesus? Where do you need to keep dying to yourself and your own passions and desires and instead to be characterized by a Christ-like self-control that enables you to keep increasingly bringing your attitudes and actions and behaviors into line with his? Is, just by the way, this is not a pick and choose kind of thing. Like the question is, where is God, where is he putting his finger on your heart? Where is he calling you to obedience to him? And I'll just add this. I know we are out of time, but this is important. Church, you can't do any of the things that this passage calls you to by yourself. You cannot do any of them by yourself. Central to all of these instructions is the relationship of God's people with one another. They're to model, example, set a tone, right? They're to teach others and learn from one another. They're to be in community together to urge and strengthen and challenge and encourage one another. Like you can't do any of the things in this passage by yourself. And in love for you, some of you, you really need to hear me say this. Some of you are here and you just kind of have this fundamental attitude that like you just really don't need anybody else to do godliness. You're like, I can just do it by myself. Like community, discipleship, nah. That's just, it doesn't fit my personality type. That's not who I am. That's not what I, it's like, I'm out on that stuff. And what I just need you in love for you, I just need you to hear this. That is not only a, that's not only a total lie. That is actually rebellion. 
Because what you're saying is, you know what, God, I don't really, like, I'm just going to do things the way I think I see fit. And I really need to do them the way you've decided that they work best. I'll figure it out myself. That's not just a lie, that's rebellion. Listen, if you are an older Christian, part of growing in godliness is not just being an example to others from a distance, but is modeling and helping others to grow in godliness up close. To actually be in people's lives. And you can't do that from a distance. If you are a younger Christian, you don't know everything. You haven't figured it all out yet. You are not God's gift to this universe, right? So humble yourself and assume that you have something you need to learn from those who have gone before you. That's why at River City, like, we don't do small groups based on age brackets or stage of life. Here's the reality. You need people who aren't like you to grow in godliness. We need one another. That's why we don't just like section that stuff off. Yeah, it's way easier to just hang out with people you already like and that are just like you. That's not how you grow in godliness, though. You grow in godliness by being a part of a community where people in all different spaces and stages of life are pursuing Jesus together. So for all of us, let's keep coming back to the grace of God made known to us in Jesus. Let's keep looking forward to his glorious return so that we might be filled with all the power and motivation that we need to live today and every day in a way that's characterized by saying no to ungodliness and worshiping ourselves. And yes to Christ-likeness and worshiping him for our joy, for the good and the salvation of our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our kids. And so that Jesus, our great God and Savior, might be given all the glory he is due, both now and forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I have gone long. I just like pray, God, that you would be gracious, that whatever was from you this morning, you'd cause to sink deeply into people's hearts, wherever you are calling us towards obedience, whatever is from your spirit, Jesus, cause it to just like take root in people. And whatever was just my ramblings, just like let that stuff go. Let the wind take it. Jesus, we really need you. We want to be a people who don't just try harder and just like suck it up to try to be more godly, but a people who out of a love for you give ourselves back to you, Jesus. Who give ourselves wholeheartedly to looking more like you. God, so that you might be glorified and so that our friends and neighbors and coworkers and kids, they might know you for real. We pray. Amen.